You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Life is full of its ups and downs and its twists and turns. Life presents us with high points and with low points, with mountaintops and with valleys. And if you live a long and full and normal life, then you will find days in your life when you are loved and days in your life when you are hated. You will come across times when people sing your praise and when people curse your name. You will have times in your life when you feel as very near as to God as you are to the flesh upon your bones. And there will be times when you feel as far away as the most distant galaxy. There will be times in your life when there is fruit and abundance of it from the work and the labor that you do for the Lord. There will be lots of fruit and immediate fruit. And then there will be times in your life when there is not so much fruit. And the fruit from your ministry will be slower in coming, if at all. And you will wonder, is God going to use anything that I've done for Him? And can He use any of that? There will be good times and bad times. There is a time for weeping and a time for rejoicing, a time to be happy and a time to be sad, a time to love and a time to hate. All of these things are appointed to man. We have the high tops, high points and the low points, the mountaintops and the valleys. Probably the most um, poignant way of describing life would be to liken it to a roller coaster. You start out and somebody really carries you along for the first little bit until you're about 18 and about then all of you get to see all of life and it's just, panoramic, beautiful view at the top. It's been a coast pretty much all the way up till then. But you're only at the top for a few seconds before you quickly realize what life is really about. And you soon find out that it is a bunch of low points punctuated by a bunch of high points. And every once in a while you hit the high point and you get this majestic view, but it doesn't last very long and you find yourself down in the valley again. And there are some unexpected turns this direction and that direction and these unexpected sensations which are excitement mingled with fear and then as almost as fast as it started it comes to a screeching halt you're at the very end of it wondering to yourself boy could I I wish I could do that all again is that life or is that a roller coaster or both some of you are near that screeching halt and you're saying to yourself I wish I could go back and do it all over again because it was so much fun The Apostle Paul knew the highs and he knew the lows of life. And one of the things that we must admire about the Apostle Paul is his ability to keep an even keel in the midst of all of it. He did not let the high points go to his head. He did not let the low points drive him from the Lord. Instead, we see in the Apostle Paul, and we must admire this in him, his ability to approach all of it with a level head and a sense of balance, and a sense of perspective. Almost as if he could step back at any given moment and see the big picture, and see how it was all unfolding. And he never was puffed up when things were going good, and he never was distant from the Lord or hostile when things were going bad. And he knew both the good times and the bad times. Paul seemed to have discovered that secret of human contentment. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes this, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled 
and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need, and I can do it all through Him who strengthens me. That is level-headed balance. That is the perspective of a man who has been through the high points and the low points. He has been through life's roller coaster and sitting in prison near the end of his life just a couple years from martyrdom. The Apostle Paul says, I've learned the secret. It is to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. Top of the roller coaster, bottom of the valley. I know how to live in abundance and I know how to live in want. I know how to be filled and I know how to be hungry. And I can do it all with the strength that Christ provides for me. That's perspective. Roller coaster is a term I would use to describe life in general, and it's certainly a term that I would use to describe Paul's first missionary journey. At the end of Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul leaves Pisidian Antioch and he goes to Iconium, and there he wins a bunch of disciples. Luke says that he spoke in such a manner that many people believed on the gospel. Boy, that's a high point, isn't it? Well, he's not there for very long before the crowd kind of turns against him and there's this rash plot hatched to take his life. And they want to mistreat him and to stone him. So Paul has to flee the city for his life because he he comes on to the fact that this plot is out there and this is what the crowd is going to do. So he has to leave Iconium. That's a low point. And they get to Lystra and he performs a miracle and the people start to what? To worship him. And they come out and say to him, the gods have come down to us and become like men. And they say this in the Iconium language. And the priest of Zeus goes to the temple outside the city and he grabs oxen and garland and brings them back into the crowd to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. He is at the top of public acclaim. Now it's not that this is a spiritual highlight or a spiritual mountaintop, so to speak, because it distressed Paul that they would offer sacrifice to him. And so he tries to restrain the crowd from doing that. And he preaches the gospel to the crowd to get them to turn from these vain things. So it wasn't like a spiritual mountaintop, but it was certainly the mountaintop of public opinion. In fact, in terms of public opinion, could things be going any better for Paul and Barnabas? Not at all. He is on the mountaintop. Well, do you want to make a little prediction as to what comes after the mountaintop? What always comes after mountaintop? What always comes after the top of the roller coaster? It's a drop to another low point. Now, if you guessed, I would imagine that the Apostle Paul is about to face a low point. You would be right on the money. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. This was initially intended to be one sermon for that whole passage. And in going through it, I quickly realized there's far too much here that is of good meat to us to simply brush over it. So we're going to split this up and take this on in two Sundays. So we're going to look at Acts 19 verses, 14 verses 19 through 21 today. Next week we'll look at verses 22 and 23. And trust me friends, these verses are loaded with good stuff from the life of the Apostle Paul. We see in verses 19 through 23 The basic summation of it is Paul's statement in verse 22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so the Apostle Paul is going to show show to us what it is to endure affliction for righteousness' sake. And then we're going to see next week how the Apostle Paul prepared others to endure afflictions for righteousness' sake. So let's just look this morning at how Paul himself persevered through afflictions for the sake of righteousness. Beginning at verse 19. Let's read 19, 20, and 21. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. In case you haven't guessed, that's the low point that comes after being worshipped. 
Verse 20, while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse 22 goes on, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And that takes us into next week where we see how the Apostle Paul prepared others to endure afflictions for the sake of righteousness. Verse 19 through 21 is where we're focusing on this morning how Paul himself endured afflictions. Now, you'll notice that there seems to be a time lapse between the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. Why do I say that? Well, read verse 18. Even with these things, this is after the Apostle Paul's message, even at saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. It doesn't suppose that this stoning happens on the same day or at the same time as the crowd worshiping him. There seems to be a a gap here where the Jews make that trip from Antioch and from Iconium down to Lystra, where Paul is at. Maybe just a couple of days. Maybe a week. There is a time here when those Jews make that trip. They hear that Paul is in Lystra. They hear what has happened there, and they decide, well, if this guy's being worshipped in Lystra, we're going to go correct this. And so they take off from Iconium, or Antioch and Iconium. They come to Lystra, and then they work to turn the crowds away from the Apostle Paul and, t- and turn them against him so that they can stone him. There also seems to be here a time period in which the Apostle Paul makes some disciples. You'll notice down in verse 20 that after they stone him and drag him out of the city, the disciples stand around him. So he's had a couple days to gain some converts and start a church there and the disciples are there. There's people who are following Paul now and listening to him and he's discipling them. And it's then that these Jews come down from Antioch and stone him. And what is remarkable about the situation is how quickly the crowd went from worshiping Paul and Barnabas, calling them Zeus and Hermes, to stoning Paul and Barnabas. Even if a few days have elapsed between these two events, and I'm inclined to say that there have been a couple days elapsing between these events, look at how quickly the crowd has turned. How is it that a crowd can go from worshiping Him to stoning Him in just a matter of a few days? Does that seem surprising to you? You surprised by that? You know you shouldn't be. If you know anything about herd mentality, then you know how easy it is to sway a crowd. It doesn't take long at all. It is easier to to deceive and to sway a thousand people than it is to deceive and sway one. Because everybody that's around you, they don't want to be different than the rest of the crowd. So if this is what they're hearing, this must be right, and the crowd must agree with this, or they would leave. And since they're all still here, then I'm going to go along with them. Crowds are easily swayed. Matthew Henry says the, the breath of popular opinion turns as the wind. One day it's blowing this direction, the other day it's blowing that direction. What could they have said to the crowd to turn them against Paul and Barnabas? Well, I would suggest maybe that Paul and Barnabas have already done a good deal of work to turn the crowd against themselves. Remember the message that Paul preached? We proclaim the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things. My religion's not vain. Yes, it is. Your priest, your idols, your worship, your sacrifices, your temple, it's all empty. It's all vain. But Paul, you've just criticized generations of family worship. I'm preaching the gospel to you that you would abandon these things. Now that could have been a little bit more than just mildly offensive to them. To call their religion and their sacrifices and their faith vain. 
Add on top of that the fact that crowds are just fickle to begin with. They change opinions like they change their clothing. One day blowing this direction, the other day blowing that direction. He's called all of their worship and their sacrifices empty things. And look, folks, reality would have set in eventually. They would have come to the conclusion and the understanding that they were not gods. That was the inevitable conclusion. These guys aren't Paul. These guys aren't Zeus and Hermes. So what do you do with two guys that you thought were gods and now you find out aren't gods, and yet they can heal a sick man? You know what the crowd's response would be? If these guys aren't deities, then they must be dangers or devils or deceivers. And so that's what they assume. I don't think it took any effort at all for these Jews from Antioch to sway the crowd into a stoning mob. That's what they wanted to do in Iconium. They tried to stone Paul, but he found out about it. He went to Lystra, and now they take the plot that is hatched in Iconium, and they bring it to Lystra, and there they execute it. And it's not a legal execution. It's not a judicial sentence. This is a lynching. They have worked up the mob into this stoning frenzy. They have turned public opinion against Paul. And Luke says that they stoned him, and then they drug him out of the city. Now, do you notice something here? Barnabas is not stoned. Why is that? Well, maybe Barnabas wasn't the chief speaker. Barnabas isn't the leader. Maybe they figure if they just get Paul, Barnabas will sort of take care of himself. Uh, Paul is really who they're after. He's the uncontested leader. He's the chief speaker. He's the one who seems to be doing all of the work, all of the preaching, all of the teaching, uh, more so than Barnabas. Not that Barnabas was lazy or a sloth or anything like that, but Paul takes the preeminence here. Maybe it is that Barnabas managed to escape and Paul couldn't. Maybe Barnabas just wasn't even in the neighborhood. They were separated. Barnabas was on one side of the city and they found Paul and they drug him outside of the city and they stoned him. And then look what they did with him. They drug him outside of the city and dropped off his corpse like they were dropping off a dog and left him limp and bloody and beaten and bludgeoned in a heap outside the city. Now, some have suggested at this juncture that the Apostle Paul experienced a miracle. That he was actually killed at this time, and then he was resurrected or raised from the dead by God, so that the Apostle died and God resurrected him and he came back to life, worked that miracle, or that it was a miraculous healing. I don't think that that's the case. You know why I don't think that's the case? Look how Luke describes this. They drug him outside of the city, supposing him to be dead. This was their assumption. The crowd had taken those rocks and they had beat him over the head. He was bloody, he was bruised, he was bludgeoned, and he was unconscious. They knew what a dead stoning victim looked like. And he was as close to dead and looked as dead as dead could be without being dead. And they drug him outside of the city supposing that he was dead. But Luke doesn't tell us Paul was dead. He tells us that they wrongly assumed he was dead. So Luke seems to be indicating the Apostle Paul was very much alive. Even though from the appearances of it, they had every reason to think he was dead. The word suppose there is a word in the Greek that actually means, or, or really means, to suppose something that's not true. Luke uses it three other times in the book of Acts. Once he uses it of Simon, who supposed he could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't true. It's used of the Philippian jailer, who after the earthquake, supposed that the prisoners had escaped. That wasn't true. They supposed that Paul was dead. And he wasn't. And the disciples gathered around, and I wonder if Timothy was there. Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. You remember Timothy was from Lystra? Indicating that Paul would have led Timothy to the Lord on this missionary journey. 
Maybe Timothy was one of those disciples that gathered around the Apostle Paul. And as they gathered around his bloody mass of bleeding flesh in this outside the city, maybe under a couple stones, they noticed that he's not dead. And perhaps they begin to tend to his wounds. And after a period of time, the Apostle Paul gets up and he goes into the city. Now, is that a miraculous healing? I don't think it was. I don't think it was a miraculous resurrection. And I do not think it was a miraculous healing. When Luke wants to describe a miracle, he has no problem doing so in terms which are unequivocal and clear. He doesn't do that here. Are we getting a picture of an apostle who was miraculously raised from the dead and healed so that he could leave and go into the city? Or are we getting the picture of an apostle who is tenacious? I think we're getting the picture of an apostle who is tenacious. Covered in blood, he gets up from where he is at, and he makes his way back into the city. Now, I think the Apostle Paul felt every one of those stones. This stoning left its mark on the Apostle Paul. And I mean that both figuratively and literally. Figuratively in this sense, the Apostle Paul mentioned these sufferings three times in his writings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, Once I was stoned. He makes reference to this stoning. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says to Timothy, You know well my perseverance, my afflictions, my sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. He makes reference to these sufferings. But perhaps the most vivid reference to this comes to a letter that he would write to the Christians in Lystra, in Derby, in Iconium, and in Antioch, the letter to the Galatians. These are the Galatian churches. At the end of that letter to these churches, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 6, verse 17, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. What marks, Paul? You see this one right here? That's where the stone hit me. And this one back here on the back of my neck, that hurts worse than all of them. That's where the first rock hit me. That guy came up behind me. Wham, out of the blue. Put me right to my knees. That rock had to be as big as a cantaloupe. At least that's how it felt. And I felt every rock after that. And and over here, you see where the the scar tissue is? The hair doesn't even grow there anymore. And right up here on top is where that sharp rock flayed my skin back. And right between my shoulder blades, a rock hit me. And I think it cracked a vertebrae back there. That's still sore. And on the back of my neck, if I turn over just right, it'll wake me up out of a dead sleep. He felt every rock. He was stoned. This is as low as low could get. And that's what Paul meant when he said, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You want a mark in your flesh? Paul says, I got him. I was stoned. Less than 24 hours after his stoning, Luke says, the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. It's a 40-mile trip. Less than 24 hours after being stoned, he and Barnabas leave for Derby. You would think that we would read in here that the Apostle Paul took a couple days He rested, he recuperated, he went into hiding, laid down a little bit. Not Paul, doesn't waste a day. Out of the city he goes. Off to Derby. A 40-mile trip. I don't think he was making good time. Not after the stoning. I think he was walking slow. I think he was sore. I think he was in pain. But I think he was an incredibly tenacious individual. And they stoned him, and he got up, and he went right back into the city, and then he left for Derby. You'll notice that Luke doesn't record a lot about what happened in Derby. He just says in verse 21 that after they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. There seems to be a breather from the suffering. 
The Lord seems to have given him some time in Derby when he preached the gospel, made a lot of disciples. That was positive. He needed a rest. The Lord gave it to him in Derby. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul lists the sufferings that he, that he experienced here, he doesn't even mention Derby. He mentions Antioch, he mentions Iconium, and he mentions Lystra, but he doesn't mention Derby as one of the cities that he suffered in. Why is that? I think the Lord was giving him a breather. I think the Lord knew that he had taken as much as he could take, and he gave him a rest in Derby. And after he preached the gospel there and made disciples and established his church, Luke says that he returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. What? You returned? Did the rocks knock some gears loose up here, Paul? You returned to Antioch, to Iconium, and to Lystra. Do you not remember that it was in Lystra that you were stoned? Do you not remember that it was in Antioch that they hatched the plot to stone you? Do you not remember that it was in Antioch that they blasphemed you and resisted you and opposed you and drove you out of that city? Has all of that escaped your memory? He returned. Look at the map on the back of your bulletin insert. You see where Lystra is at? You see they're traveling east to Derby. What would happen if Paul continued to travel east? Where would he end up? Tarsus. Now, what is Tarsus for Paul? Home. Less than 60 miles away is home. You can hear the voices in your head, can't you, Paul? You deserve a break. You have traveled hard. You have labored hard. You have worked hard. Paul, you were just stoned in Lystra. You need some R&R. You need some rest. You need some time to recuperate. You need some time for the wounds to heal, Paul. Nobody will think any less of you if you just continue going east and go to Tarsus and rest there. And truth be told, we wouldn't think any less of Paul if we just read that he continued on to Tarsus and went home and rested. We wouldn't think any less of Paul after what he's been through, but not Paul. He goes right back into the lion's mouth into Lystra where he was just stoned. How do you explain a man like that? Acts 20, verse 24. Turn over a couple pages to that verse. I want you to read that for yourself. Acts 20, verse 24. How do you explain, Paul? This is it. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. That's his part of his delivery given to the elders in Ephesus. I do not count my life as dear to myself. That's how you explain Paul. That's Paul. It's not about my life. It's not about my safety. It's not about my security. How do you explain a man that when he's 60 miles from home, looking east, he can see the tops of those mountains, the Taurus mountain range. He has seen those mountains from the other side in, in Tarsus. And he knows that a couple days he can be in the comforts and the convenience and the security of some place that is home. And he goes right back into the heat of the battle. It's because Paul could say, I don't count my life as anything dear to myself on any account, but that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. The man was tenacious. He returned. Do you want to know why it is that the Apostle Paul, apart from Jesus Christ, is the most influential human being who has ever walked this earth. It's summed up in that one word, return. 
he returned. He didn't consider his life as dear to himself, but he went right back into the heat of the battle. And that speaks volumes of Paul. Volumes. It shows to us, for one thing, Paul's courage. I don't think you could get... I think it would be easier to get blood from a stone than it would be to put fear into the heart of the Apostle Paul. He did not fear men. Not only did he not fear what men thought of him, he did not fear what men could do to him. It didn't matter. What are they going to do? Stone him? Been there, done that, and bought the t-shirt. He was already stoned. They have put on him everything they can put on him. The only thing they could do to him that they have not done to him is kill him. Does that scare Paul? Not at all. To live as Christ and to die is what? Gain. To depart and be with Christ, Paul says, far better. What are they going to do? Stone me? I've been through that. I've survived that. That's the worst they can do? I could take another one of those. It shows his courage. That's why when he wrote to Timothy to try and get Timothy to courage up a little bit, to cowboy up a little bit. He said to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel of God or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering. Timothy, God has not made us cowards, so join with me in suffering. Don't run away from the suffering. I don't think the Apostle Paul knew a scared day in his life, if a scared moment in his life. It demonstrates his courage. But second, it demonstrates his love for the brethren. Why did Paul go back to Lystra? Because he has a point to prove? No. Because he wants to provoke the opposition? No. Because he, he wants to be known as somebody who did such a thing? No, that's not it at all. You know why he did it? It's in verse 22. To strengthen the souls of the disciples. That's why Paul went back. We're going to flesh this out next week, how Paul prepared others to persevere in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake. But verse 22 and 23 is his reason for going back, to strengthen the souls of the disciples. There were believers in Antioch and in Iconium and in Lystra that Paul had brought to Christ. Brand new Christians. And he's not going to continue on to Tarsus and leave these brand new believers to sort of flop and flounder out in the middle of the opposition that they must surely be facing. If he was going to suffer, he knew that the believers that he had led to the Lord were going to suffer. And Paul could not consider his work in this region finished until those young disciples were able and willing to stand up under the persecution that was going to come. And so thinking not of himself, putting the interests of others ahead of his own, with humility of mind, the Apostle Paul steps right back into the furnace and he goes into that region in order that he might strengthen the souls of the disciples and to prepare them to endure the affliction and the suffering for righteousness' sake. That's why he did it. Let me remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are the chosen, that they also may obtain salvation which is in Jesus Christ and with it eternal glory. He did it for others. If the Apostle Paul thought more of himself than he did of other people, even these people that he has only known for a few weeks, if he thought more of himself than he did for others, you know what we would read? He continued on east to Tarsus, and there he rested. But the Apostle Paul doesn't think more of himself than he does for others. The welfare, the stability, the perseverance of these new saints in the faith means more to him than his comfort, his security, and I would say his own life. What he's really interested in 
is his love for the brethren. Friends, I ask you, are you courageous for Christ? I would venture to say that most of us cower in fear at the threat of far less than a stoning. Far less than a stoning. And then I would ask you, do you think more of others than you do of yourself? Are you putting the interests of others ahead of yourself? Hot on the heels of being bludgeoned by stones, drug outside of the city, left for dead in a bloody heap, the Apostle Paul shows us what real courage is. And he shows us what real love for the brethren is. He didn't count his life as dear to himself. And he didn't think of himself ahead of others. But he went right back into the fiery furnace, right back into the heat of the battle, so that he could minister to other people, strengthen the souls of the disciples, and build them up in the faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the example that Paul is to us of perseverance, of long-suffering, of tenacity, of courage, and of selfless love. And we pray, Father, that you would give to us the grace to be courageous where we're at. Father, we are by nature cowards and we, we quiver at far more or far less than the threat of even a stoning. But we're grateful that you give us the strength to stand up and we pray that you would help us to follow Paul's advice to Timothy to join with him in suffering for righteousness' sake and in being a testimony and a shining light for Christ. And give us, Father, an undying and unselfish love for the brethren and for others. And help us to model that selfless obedience that Paul seemed to just have so naturally. We ask this in Jesus' name, by His grace and for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.